Well, as a church, we are, as you just saw from the scripture reading, in uh, a really special chapter in the Gospel of John, John 17. And really want to encourage you, if you have a copy of God's Word, to open it up this morning. There, This morning, I don't know that there will be many words on the screen, and so you'll be really served well if you have a copy of God's Word in your lap, open, um, reading along with me. We'll, we'll stick around the first five verses of this chapter, um, but we may move to some other places as well. And just an encouragement, if you call Parkview Church your home, when you come here on Sundays, I really want to encourage you to bring a copy of God's Word with you. Um, I know growing up as a young boy, I was really fortunate to have God-fearing parents who took me to church on Sunday morning, and I can always remember walking into sun to church with my mom and dad, and they had big Bibles in their hands. And it was very clear that they were going there to study the Bible. And oftentimes, I think we lose some of that as much of what we do now is transition to our phones. I just wonder, you know, do our generation growing up here at church, are they going to have that same impression when they see uh, men and women walking through the, the doors of this church? Are they going to know instantly that the Bible is something that we hold dear and that we value and that we proclaim on Sunday morning? So I really want to encourage you to bring a copy of God's Word with you when you come to church because it's going to be guaranteed. We're opening it up, and we're going to be studying it, okay? Um, we're doing so right now in John 17, which is a really, really special chapter in the Bible. We, we introduced this series last week, and what we said is this is really a crucial moment, um, not just in the Gospel of John, but it's a really crucial moment in the life of Jesus. What preceded um, this chapter of 17 was what's oftentimes referred to as the upper room discourse. Maybe you're familiar with the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet and saying, hey, in the same way that I served you, you now go and serve one another. Um, and then after that demonstration of love and humility, our Lord Jesus begins to to proclaim to them. He basically preaches them, uh, preaches a message to his followers. And he's preparing, this message is intended to prepare his disciples on the life that he has called them to live in his absence on, on this earth. Okay, So he's preparing them for the life that is ahead for them. And as you can imagine, these words of preparation for these disciples, men who had been following Jesus for some three years, walking with Jesus, had probably likely some expectations of how this would go. And what they're beginning to see here in the Gospel of John is that maybe their expectations aren't quite what the Lord would have for them. That the, the beginning to understand that the path that God has called them to is a path that while it certainly ends in victory and hope, it also involves suffering, rejection, persecution, and opposition. And for the disciples, they are beginning to see this. And so Jesus' words during the upper room discourse provide for his disciples words of just honesty, right? This is going to be challenging. But his words also, through his grace and his mercy, are words of, of hope and peace and comfort. And so Jesus is preparing his disciples for the road ahead of them. His preparation continues in John 17, only it, it shifts from being an exhortation or a sermon to now being a prayer. And so that's what's so unique about John 17, and really so, like we said last week, really so sacred and so special. What we see in John 17 is Jesus essentially pulling back the curtain, allowing us to peer into his very heart as Jesus the Son communes with God the Father. 
And so this is a unique glimpse into really redemptive history. It's also a unique glimpse that we get in the scriptures into the very heart of Jesus. And so for, for us, what we'll see as we walk through this chapter is it's sacred, it's a special text, but for us, it's also incredibly strategic as a church. As we consider this new vision that we believe God has called us to as a people, what he wants us to become, that we become a people who glorify him by making disciples of Jesus, that here we get to peer into Jesus's heart and we get to discover for ourselves what Jesus's heart is for us. As, as we move through the chapter, like we said last week, the first five verses, our focus this morning, Jesus asks specifically for the Father to do something in his life. His concern, Jesus, in the first five verses, Jesus is praying for himself. He will move on into the next, from verse 16, verse 6 to verse 19, asking specifically for his immediate disciples, the disciples that are right there with him. And then from there, verses 20 to the end of the chapter, Jesus will pray for all of the subsequent disciples that will come after, basically you and me. He's praying for his church, for his people. And so, like I said before, these first five verses, the focus of our time this morning, we will learn how Jesus, what Jesus is praying to God the Father for himself, for Jesus the Son. And what we'll see is that there's a theme. There's a word that keeps emerging. You probably heard it when Joella was reading it. It's the word glory. The word glory is front and center in these first five verses. In fact, this is a major theme throughout the Gospel of John. Some 42 different times throughout the Gospel of John, the author, John, refers to glory in some way, shape, or form. He's concerned for the glory of God. In this chapter alone, eight times, in John 17, we hear the word glory or glorified, a form of it. It's a focus in Jesus' prayer. In the first five verses, five times the word glory or glorified appears. It is a central focus in Jesus' Jesus prayer to the Father for himself. It is front and center in Jesus' prayer. It's a major concern for our Lord Jesus. So, Let's define the terms. What is glory? A word that many of us are familiar with. What is glory? Well, if you were to just look it up in the dictionary, you might find a phrase like this. Glory is another word for it could be used as magnificence or great beauty. Moses, we know in Exodus chapter 33, when he was meeting between this meeting that we hear about between God and Moses, when Moses asks uh, God what he wants to see, he says he wants to see the glory of God. The, the Hebrew word that Moses would have used and would have been used throughout the Old Testament would have been a word that translates better into our language as the word weight. And maybe when you've heard how glory is defined, you've heard that term used as, as though it's weight, weighty. What Moses essentially, effectively was asking God to do was he wanted God to show him the full weight of himself, to make the full weight of who God was known to Moses. And so throughout the Old Testament, this word oftentimes is translated to mean weight. We also see that God wants, that Jesus wants the glory of God. He wants, he wants God to be glorified. What does it mean if glory means the magnificence or the, the great beauty? What does it mean to glorify something? 
Well, it simply means to display something as glorious. To glorify something is to lift something up to a place of admiration. To present something, going back to the Old Testament term, to present something as weighty. Eugene Peterson says that to glorify is to display the bright splendor. To display the bright splendor. The glory of God we see in the first five verses is the primary concern for Jesus. And oftentimes we can think of Jesus as being only interested in saving us from our sins. Trust me, Jesus is interested in that. Okay, we'll see that as we go throughout this chapter of John 17, that Jesus is interested in saving us from our sins. It's, it's common to think of the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about your salvation and my salvation. Certainly it is about that. But here what we see is that Jesus is consumed with a passion to reveal the very glory of the Father. What we'll see this morning is how the two, God's glory and our salvation, are deeply related, deeply connected with each other. And Jesus' heart here in the first five verses is to display the very glory of the Father. That's his great burden. Now, our culture knows a little something about glory, too. We live in a, the Western, secular world, which largely rejects God, but doesn't necessarily reject this idea of glory, right? Our, our world knows something about glory. In fact, we are given throughout the world little glimpses of glory to sort of occupy our hearts and our minds throughout our life. Often those glimpses are associated with the accomplishments of man. A great deal of achievements there are throughout human history which are worthy of admiration. And we can often find ourselves as a people caught up in the accomplishments of human beings. Whether it's accomplishments in the artistic world or the athletic world, accomplishments in science. Just think of the last year and some of the, the advances in science, in technology, right? We are a people who long for glory. If you were at the game last night in this community, you saw people who were reveling in the accomplishments of a particular team, glorying in a tremendous, spectacular victory. A town, in fact, consumed by the glory of a football team. This past week, I went to a concert, a phenomenal concert, a choir concert at City High, and it was beautiful. It was glorious. And, and people knew it, and they recognized it. They wanted to appreciate the glory of the human voice and the arrangement and the composition of the music, standing, applauding, bowing, amazed at what the human voice could do. But these glimpses of glory that we see throughout the world, the problem is they are fleeing. They're short-lived. Football team that won last night uh, might lose. Not perfect. Not going to happen? Okay. Who knows? There will be some, at some point, a team will lose. Let's just say like that. I don't know which team it's going to be. The advances in technology are amazing today, but they're insufficient for tomorrow. We're unsatisfied. The reality is, as glorious as some of these human accomplishments are, we are still a 
fallen, flawed, and fragile people. Truth is that these accomplishments oftentimes leave us disappointed. When we, the glory that our hearts long for, allow that desire to rest on ourselves, we quickly become disappointed, discouraged, and find ourselves wanting more. Well, the good news of the text this morning is that there is a glory, a glory that our hearts long for, that is not fleeing, but endures forever. And if we give ourselves to this, this aim, we will never find ourselves disappointed or forgotten. Today, we'll see that the glory of God is revealed through the cross of Christ. I'll say that one more time. The big idea of the text this morning is that the glory of God is revealed through the cross of Christ. This is certainly the focus of Christ's prayer for himself in verses 1 through 5. The first point is that we see the, the glory of God in the purpose of Christ. The, 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 the focus of his prayer, of our Lord's prayer in verses 1 through 5, is that in his death, the glory of God would be put on display. That's what Jesus wants to see happen. In his death, that God would be glorified. Now, if you just look at the structure, again, you'll be helped if you have a copy of God's Word open in front of you. If you just look down at the text, you will see there's this structure that exists here in these five verses. Verse, it, it kind of resembles a sandwich. Verse 1 goes with verse 5. Verse 2 goes with verse 4. And then the very heart or the meat of the sandwich, we find verse 3. We see the idea that the death of Jesus would showcase the glory of God primarily in verses 1 and 5. If you look down, you'll see these phrases. In verse 1, you'll see him say that the hour has come. In verse 5, he says, Now, Father, glorify me. Both references to an hour, to a time that Jesus is referring to in his prayer. In the Gospel of John, the hour always refers to either the death of Jesus or his final return on the day of judgment. Up until this point, we see that Jesus, when he refers to the hour, he he says that it is a future event. If you guys are familiar with the Gospel of John in chapter 2, the wedding of Cana, where Jesus does this amazing miracle and turns and, and multiplies uh, wine, turns water into wine. If you are familiar with the story, wine ran out and Jesus' mother approaches him, comes to him, and simply says, they have no wine. And Jesus' response is this, my hour has not yet come. He's saying it's not time for him. The hour he's referring to is the hour of his death. And he says, it's not here yet. It's a future event. Similarly, in the interaction with Jesus had with the woman of the well in John chapter 4, verse 23, again, Jesus says, my hour is coming. It's not here now. It will be here soon. It's on its way. He's referring to his death. Then in John 12, 23, it completely shifts and if you have your Bibles, you could flip to chapter 12, and you see in, in John 12, 23, Jesus says in verse 23, 
Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In chapter 12 of John, he suddenly says, the hour is, has arrived. So after the triumphal entry, when Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem, Jesus is declaring, that hour I said is not here yet, it's here. It has arrived. Then the next verse, Jesus speaks specifically of his death. You see it in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jump down to verse 27. He says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Jesus, when he refers to the hour, he is referring to his death. He's referring to his death. The hour equals his death. And the request for the Son to the Father is that he would be glorified as he dies. That as he dies, he would bring glory to God. That's his great burden. We had a, growing up in our home, we had a bulletin board that existed in a hallway. Again, youngest of five. Many accomplished siblings in our family, and all of their grand accomplishments were, were kept. My mom was into scrapbooking. This was probably before that was a thing. I don't know if it still is or not, but whatever. We had a bulletin board in a hallway that had pictures of my brothers and sisters and, and uh, you know, newspaper clippings of when somebody would get in the newspaper, certificates, awards that they would receive. They would be sort of pictured up on this bulletin for all to see. Anybody to walk into our house to see how accomplished their children were, very proud of us. And they were on display in that bulletin board in the hallway glorious moments of our life. Well, if God were to do a similar thing, have a bulletin board that demonstrated all of his wonderful accomplishments, the absolute center of that board, largest frame, center frame, would be the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ reveals for the world the very glory of God. Jesus dying on the cross is front and center through eternity for all to see God's magnificent splendor, his great beauty, most clearly seen in the cross of Christ forever. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, how? If you're familiar with what a cross is, what a cross is intended to do, how does the cross of Christ, how does one of the most barbaric and gruesome forms of torture and execution that has ever been conceived by human imagination, how does it display in a way that nothing else can the beauty of God? How is an instrument that was designed to make a spectacle, how does that torture device perfectly display the glory of God? I'll give you two reasons. Point number two. Because in the death of Jesus, God's eternal plan for salvation is completely 
realized. How does the cross of Christ put on display for all to see, none to deny, the glory, the beauty, the magnificence of the creator of the universe? Because in the death of Jesus, God's eternal plan for salvation is completely realized. We see it in verses 2 and 4. Look down at those verses there. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And then again in verse 4. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The Father had granted full authority to the Son for the very purpose of the Son giving eternal life to the people whom God had given him. This is God's plan through eternity, to call a people to himself, a people for his own possession, sons and daughters, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And this has always been God's grand plan from the beginning of time. This has been God's plan. This is the plan that was promised to the patriarchs. Think, think Abraham and Moses. This is a plan that we get a glimpse of in the kings of Israel. Think David and Solomon. And this was a plan that was prophesied and foretold through the prophets of the Old Testament. This plan, God creating a people for himself. God planned to glorify himself by calling out a people that would be his people. This plan is fully realized in Jesus Christ, a people who would know God. This has been his heart for eternity, that he would have a people who would know him, a people who would share his character. The, the attributes of God would be seen in the people. You could watch how the people live their lives. You could watch how they, they love one another, how they love the world outside of them. You could, you could watch how they radically share things together in a way that the rest of the world doesn't do. You could, you could watch their love on display and you would get a glimpse of what the God of the universe is like. They would know him. They would share his character. They would, they would, in that group of people that God has called his own, they would reflect his glory for the world to see forever. It was his plan that these people would be brought to himself through the ministry of the Son, or as he says in verse 4, through the work that the Son came to accomplish Jesus says in Luke 19.10, this is the very reason for his incarnation. The very reason that, that God took on flesh and came to this world was to seek and save the lost, to make a people for the Father, for himself. And here Jesus says, in effect, I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And in just a matter of a few hours, Jesus would be lifted up on a cross and he would cry out, Father, it is finished. Why is the cross so central to the glorification of God? Because it is through the cross that God's plan to save a people for himself is completed. Reason number one. Why else? Reason number two. Final point. We see it in verse three. And this is eternal life that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
really the heart of the passage. Third reason, or sorry, the second reason, the third point, why the cross reveals the glory of God is because the cross reveals the character of God. In the cross, you actually see what God is like. You see it in the middle of the verse there, it says, and this is eternal life. Eternal life is equal to knowing God. How, how does the cross of Jesus reveal the nature and the glory of God? How does it help us to know God? Well, well, first and foremost, I think in, in many ways, the, the way that our minds often think is it, it allows us to know God in a personal way, right? This is the, the beauty of the gospel of Jesus is that we're brought into an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And we're able to know not just about him, but we're also, we're able to know him personally. But, but also it gives us knowledge as we look at the cross. It, it, it makes it possible for us to know him mentally, personally. But it also provides for us knowledge of who God is, his very character, his attributes. The, the cross is the supreme demonstration of God's attributes. Let me highlight a few of them this morning. First is, as we look at the cross, we get a glimpse, we get an understanding of the holiness of God, of the holiness of God. God cannot look down at this world and say to himself, well, sure, they've gone astray. Yeah, they're ugly and they're broken in sin. Yeah, they've rebelled and they've turned back. They've turned, you know, their backs on me. They've rejected my way. They've, they've gone astray. But I'm going to pretend like I haven't seen a thing. I'm going to just pretend like there's not a problem, and I'll just have them back. God cannot do that. He does not do that. He, he doesn't do that because our sin is a problem. The ugliness of our sin is a significant Problem. It's a problem which cannot be ignored. He recognizes the sin of this world, the sin in you and in me, and he can't ignore it. He has to deal with it because he is a holy God. He's a holy God. He, he can't ignore our sin. And in doing so, his character is made known. His holy and righteous character by dealing with our sin. His holiness is put on display for us to see. We get a glimpse of his holiness. We also get a glimpse of his justice, the justice of God. It's Anselm who said, if God did not justly punish sin, he would be unjust to himself. If God did not justly punish sin, he would be unjust to himself. Remember, he's a holy God. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 tells us that. And our, our sin, the truth is, is a crime against God. It is a cosmic treason asserting that God's authority really belongs to us. Our sin incurs a debt. We owe God something for displaying, for, sorry, for disobeying his law. Moreover, our sin destroys the relationship between man and God. There's a chasm. We just got done singing about the great chasm that Jesus has been able to overcome. There's a chasm that exists between the creator and his creation. 
And God would be perfectly just, listen, he would be perfectly just to just leave us in our sin and punish us for eternity. But God is gracious. He's loving and he's full of mercy. And out of his grace, out of his love, out of his mercy, he has, desi- he has designed and desired to save us from our sin. So in order to show mercy to us without compromising his justice, the Father sent his Son so that in him our crime would be punished and our debt paid and our relationship restored at the cross. God satisfied his justice and also demonstrated his mercy. This is who God is. We see his holiness on display at the cross. We see his justice. We can also see his love in a world full of pain and suffering, disease, death, tyranny, and war. Many of us are looking. Our culture is looking for evidence of love. Our, our culture is being so bold as to redefine what love is. In fact, it's, it's gotten so out of control that, that for most of us, it's completely confusing what it is. But what's not confusing is our longing for true, pure love. And if you want to see a glimpse or evidence of real love, you look no further than the cross. In 1 John 3.16 says this, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. The world seems so certain about what love is offers one confusing definition after another. John says here, apart from the cross, from Christ and his cross, the world will never know what real love is. Won't know it. One act of true, pure love has been performed in the history of this world, namely the self-giving of God in Christ on the cross for sinners like you and me. If you want a definition of love, you're welcome to look in the culture. You can even look in the dictionary. But I would encourage you to look no further than Calvary. For on the cross, we see love perfectly poured out. We see at the cross power of God, the wisdom of God. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, 18 says this, for the word of the cross, sorry, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. God's ability to save for himself a people is demonstrated at the cross in a way that, in, in a way that none of us would have written the story to go. Nobody would, here would have designed it this way, but out of his wisdom, God turns the wisdom of this world on its head and says that it's through the cross. It's through the cross. The gospel of the cross will never be a popular message as it humbles the pride of our intellect and character. But as we look at the cross, we see the wisdom of God on full display, the faithfulness of God, the mercy of God. We could go on and on and on. You get the point that if you want to know what God is like, his character, his nature, his attributes, we see his glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross declares to all mankind with heavenly decibels that the justice, holiness, love, mercy, and grace of God are all intact. 
They have been marvelously displayed in perfect harmony upon Calvary. At Calvary, Jesus, God made flesh, offered himself as our substitute that our sins might be forgiven and that we might be welcomed into his eternal family. It remains his joy to lavish on us sinners, forgiveness, grace, and love that go unmatched in this world. Folks, the glory of God is seen forever through the cross of Jesus Christ. As I said before, just in conclusion, this cross is our way to knowledge of God. It is through the cross that we're able to personally know and experience God as our God. And this is eternal life, that we know the God, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom the Father sent. As we consider who we are as God's people, we are the church, a people of the cross. And so therefore, we should, because God's glory is revealed through his cross, the cross is never something that we're ashamed of. It is a display of his justice, his love, his mercy, his power, and his wisdom. It's not something that we are ashamed of, but it's something that we rally around. The gospel of Jesus Christ has the, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So we have no business being ashamed of it, but we proudly proclaim that we are people of the cross. And as his people, those same attributes that are displayed through the cross should be evident throughout our congregation. Just like God put his attributes on display at Calvary, so his attributes should be a display in our midst. We should be a people who are, who are a holy people, who are set apart, who, who the rest of the world looks at and says there's something different about them. We should be a people who are about executing justice, giving ourselves to acts of justice and, and mercy. We should be a people who recognize the power and necessity of loving one another. And that when we do that, God's glory is displayed in and through his church. There's a reason why as we've gone through this vision statement, where is God directing us and leading us? What do we long for as a people? Front and center of our longings and desires to be faithful to what God has called us to be is to be a people who put his bright splendor on display for everyone to see. So whether it's worshiping together on Sunday mornings, guess what? God's glory is our aim in everything that we do. Whether it's meeting in homes for the sake of mutual encouragement, unburdening our hearts, praying for one another, God's glory is front and center. Whether it's work that we do in the community, I think of places like Faith Academy where we, I mean, started up a school in this church. And in doing so, the primary purpose of that school is to take God's glory and to put it on display for a community that wants wants to be a part of something that's bigger than themselves. But often it's misdirected. We get to put God's glory on display like a banner over this community. Everything that we do, whether it's missions or prayer or small community groups or classes, everything is for this aim. 
famous pastor said it this way, the church is the mirror that reflects the whole radiance of the divine character. It is the grand scene in which the perfections of God are displayed to the universe. God's glory is revealed forever through his cross. And as the church of Jesus Christ, we are a people of that cross. Let's put his glory on display for the world to see. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Um, and as we consider um, Jesus' heart here in John 17, Lord, I just ask that it, his heart would be our heart, that you would align our affections with the very heart of Jesus, Lord, and that we would see, we would be overwhelmed, Lord, by your glory, by your beauty, by your bright splendor. Lord, and that we would um, come together as your people, the foot of the cross, reflecting your character for the world to see. Lord, help us do that. Help us to glorify you. We ask these things in your name. Amen.